0: we are on our second week of faith deconstruction all right if you missed last week I'd encourage you to check out the last uh, last week's podcast or service you can find the podcast on uh, on our website on Google Spotify Apple you can also find the entire service on our YouTube channel if you look for those things Central City Church um, last week we talked about building a house I kind of Took apart a house and built it back up. You can check that out. Today we're going to start by asking, what foundation are you building this house on? So we're we're living within this metaphor of a house, you know, and and it's okay to deconstruct a house. Uh, you Usually don't want to leave it that way because it doesn't make for a very pleasant place to live. But it's okay to deconstruct and reconstruct, and this is what we're doing in our faith. In, in our faith, a lot of times, whether you realize it or not, we've done this as Christians for centuries. So. The first thing, though, is you got to make sure you have a strong foundation. So to do that, we're going to look at 1 Corinthians chapter 3, starting with verse 10. If you like following along in a paper Bible, you can go there. 1 Corinthians chapter 3, it's in the New Testament. It will also be on the screen. And uh, here's what it says. This is uh, Paul writing to the church in Corinth, one of the churches he started. He says, 1 Corinthians 3, 10 through 17, starting with 10, By the grace God has given me, I laid a foundation As a wise builder, and someone else is building on it, but each one should build with care. So, this is a letter. Paul is writing to one of the churches that he planted in the area of Corinth. It was a church that was riddled with problems. There were things that they needed to deconstruct and things they had to reconstruct, things they had to unlearn and relearn. And Paul, talking about the work that they had ahead of them, he says it's possible to build a foundation that can last, but but it has to be built with wisdom and with care. And Paul uses a lot of different analogies here just before this verse. He talks about how he's the one that plants a seed and another one works to water it, but God helps it grow. But he switches in verse 10 to a different metaphor, one that we're using in this series, where he talks about what it's like building your faith as a house. He says, one person lays the foundation of the house and the others build the house on that foundation. And this foundation needs to be built wisely and with care. Now, the idea of uh, homes and foundations as a way of thinking about our faith is not original to Paul. Jesus told a, a parable that was similar to this, a very similar concept. He talks about how, Uh, maybe you remember this parable. He talks about how one house was built on rock and one house was built on sand. Now, anyone have to sing that song growing up in church? You guys know what song I'm talking about? Yeah. I don't even know how it goes. Anyone want to wing it for me? No, that's too much pressure. Sorry. Sorry. The sand falls apart, though. Obviously, you don't build stuff on sand. You ever been on a seashore, and you build a little sandcastle, and then the tide changes? It washes it away. Sand's not a good foundation. And he's not talking about an actual house, right? He's talking about our faith. Jesus says in this parable that the rock is, when you build it on a rock, a strong foundation is like someone who listens to his words. That's what he says, his teachings. Specifically here, he's talking about the Sermon on the Mount, where this parable is found. Things like loving your enemy, not practicing religion to be, uh, to be seen by others or to show off, but being generous for generosity's sake, not because it makes you look good. Striving not to worry. These are the things that he taught in the Sermon on the Mount, And he says, if you build your life on these teachings, it'll be a secure life and it'll hold up. Now, Paul, in today's passage, says something similar. But he expands on it from, from more than just the Sermon on the Mount. but he says that the foundation is the entire person and example and teaching of Jesus. Verse 11 says this, for no one can lay any foundation other than the one already laid, which is Jesus Christ. In other words, the the most important thing about this house that we're working with, that we're building, isn't the house itself, but the foundation that it's built on. And as people claim to follow Jesus, the only foundation that makes any sense, anything, is Jesus. Anything else is not worth building on. You can think about what it takes to build a house, The materials we use to build a house might make great windows and walls, but they'd make terrible foundations, right? So think about two by fours. I've done some framing in the past. Take a two by four, great for a wall, terrible for a foundation. If you take a two by four, which if you don't know is a piece of wood, I don't know, and you, I mean, don't make assumptions here. Um, And you lay it in the ground, like it's a piece of foundation and it's not gonna last. Now you could get, you know, wood that's like highly treated and then stick it in the ground, it's gonna last a little bit longer. But it is still, eventually, if it's touching the ground because of moisture and stuff, it's gonna eventually rot. So the things that you build your house with aren't the same thing you build your foundation with. They're separate things. Okay, this is important for the metaphor that we're working with today. And the most important one is the foundation. What you build on the foundation is important. What you build the house is important, but it's not as important. Because if you have a good foundation, everything else can be remodeled as needed. Here's how Paul explains it. If anyone builds on this foundation using gold, silver, costly stones, wood, hay, or straw, their work will be shown for what it is. Because the day will bring it to light. It will be revealed with fire, and the fire will test the quality of each person's work. We're going to really dissect these verses, but first let me just give you the big picture. Paul says that Jesus is the foundation, but when we get to building the house, we're going to use all kinds of materials. The implication is you're gonna use whatever you have laying around, whatever's available to you. You're gonna build the best house that you can, and guess what? Not all of it is going to be worth keeping. Now think about this for a moment. The Bible teaches us, the early church teaches us, Paul teaches us right here that we build our faith on Jesus, but the house we build on that foundation will include both good and bad things. Things that are worthwhile and things that are worthless. Stuff that will last and stuff that won't last. It'll happen. Now Jesus is our foundation. And here's what I mean by that. Many in our church are experiencing faith deconstruction. I'm stepping away from my notes for a second. I come over here visually to symbolize that to you all, (laughs) as if you need to know. (laughs) I don't know, I'm an idiot. A lot of people in our church are experiencing some kind of faith deconstruction. I'm here, we're doing this series to help you do it in a way that will hopefully strengthen your faith, not lose your faith, okay? Now, if you are here, and when I've talked to people, a lot of times I hear things like, I don't like Christians, I don't like church, I don't like Christianity, but I still like Jesus. So this idea that Jesus is our foundation is actually a pretty good thing because even people who aren't Christians tend to still like Jesus, you know? Because if you've ever read stories about Jesus, you're like, dude, this guy's pretty great. And that's the point. There's this foundation that we build it on and Jesus is a pretty good one. Now, a lot of the other stuff, Paul tells us, some of it's gold. You're like, man, that's fantastic. And some of it is straw and it's just not even gonna last. All right. So in other words, faith deconstruction, remember we defined it last week, the, the art of evaluating long-held beliefs and practices and choosing to jettison them or throw them away is inevitable, according to Paul. Faith deconstruction is, I love this word, biblical. It doesn't really mean anything these days. Some of what you were taught is gold and worth keeping. And friends, some of it is straw and it's not. Do you hear what I'm saying? Now, for Paul, he thinks that we should just wait for the day. And if you read it in a lot of your translations, the day is the day with a capital D for the day that God would remodel the house. On the last day, Jesus will tell us what to keep and what to throw away. That's what he's saying here. And that's something I wanna sit with for a second. So to understand what he's really saying here, we we need to become familiar with a basic assumption that Paul is making. So I'm going to go on a massive tangent, just a regular old rabbit hole, uh, rabbit trail, uh, and I don't wanna lose you in the process, okay? We will get back to where we started, but I'm warning you, we're gonna go on a little bit of a tangent. So are you ready? Too bad, we're going anyways. Oh, good, a few of you are. Okay, so, so Paul in the early church, so we're going to teach a little bit. Paul in the early church operated out of an assumption, assumption that, that began to inform their theology. It's an essential assumption. It's not something they taught, right? It wasn't something Paul wrote about explicitly and said, this is what is true. It's just an assumption that he operated out of. So, so here was the teaching. The teaching, uh, the early church believed that Jesus would come back at any time. That's what they taught. That's the teaching, and we believe that today. Still, most Christian traditions, most Christian denominations would teach this as part of their theology. It's summarized in a foundational piece of liturgy, which we use when we offer communion sometimes. It's simply, Christ has died, Christ is risen, Christ will come again. We read this during communion. So we believe that, and so did the early church, of course. But the assumption they had was that Christ would probably come back tomorrow. I mean, Christ died a couple years ago. Christ rose again just three days after. So it's only logical that Christ would come again, like, pretty quickly. Like, they couldn't know for sure, but they assumed it was, you know, and it was assumption of Paul's letters, that Jesus was coming back soon. Like, tomorrow, if not tomorrow, certainly next week, and if not next week, within a couple of years, and certainly before, you know, the end of their lifetime. Now, that's the assumption that influences so much of Paul's teaching. Some of the stuff that you hate about Paul, and don't pretend like there aren't stuff you hate about Paul. If there aren't stuff you hate about Paul, then you haven't read Paul. Okay? I'm going to give Paul the benefit of the doubt. A lot of that stuff was rooted in an assumption that Jesus was coming back, like, soon. Imagine if you honestly believed that it's entirely likely that Jesus would come back tomorrow. Now, Jesus could come back when, I'm not interested in limiting God. That's just not my M.O., It's just God can do whatever God wants. It's not my job to say God can't do something. But if you honestly believe that Jesus is most likely coming back tomorrow, how would that change your priorities on what you teach and how you structure your community? For Paul, this is what it meant. This is my interpretation. You can do what you want with it. You're stuck listening to me either way. For Paul, I think it meant that for doing and teaching churches to do very little to challenge accepted social order. He wasn't interested in issues of systemic justice or anything that, would, that, 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 that required work that would go longer than one generation. Why invest in something that took more than one generation if Jesus was surely coming back in our lifetime, right? This is why I think Paul doesn't challenge slavery. Why he doesn't challenge slavery, when Jesus, why, why challenge slavery when Jesus is going to come back, like, before you even get anything changed? Why tell slaves to run away from their masters and spend the rest of their lives running when Jesus was coming back, you know, like, this week, maybe, or at least within their life? No, he says, just wait it out. Wherever you are, you know, just wait it out, and just keep those things, like, don't worry about that. That's not important. It's why I think he encouraged people not to get married. Why get married and start a family, Yeah, because if Jesus literally could just show up during your wedding ceremony, like, don't worry about that. Jesus is coming back, like, soon. It's why I think he didn't challenge the role of women in the world. Why change an entire system that would take generations to correct and We're still correcting, by the way, when Jesus was likely to come back within a generation. He assumed, and I think the early church assumed that Jesus was coming back in our life. So why bother changing the world other than just meeting people's immediate needs and telling people about Jesus? which is what was Paul's focus, care for the poor and telling people about Jesus, but doing nothing to change the systems that make people poor. There just isn't time for that. Now, this is the danger of this assumption because, spoiler alert everyone, Jesus did not come back during Paul's lifetime. Yeah. And eventually the church, capital C, eventually the church years later had to start wrestling with that and saying, hey, Jesus might not come back in my lifetime. Maybe there's some things in this world we shouldn't allow anymore. Maybe, maybe there's some things that don't line up with who Jesus is. And In fact, I would say if Paul knew that Christians would still be working out their faith 2,000 years later, he might have spent a little bit more time rewarding some of the things he wrote thinking about it a little bit. I'm guessing that if he knew that people would quote his lines on slavery thousands of years later in a country thousands of miles from Jerusalem, and that those words would be used to enslave an entire race of people, I'm guessing that Paul would have been like, whoa, that's not that was not my intent. I, that's just my guess. But since he assumed Jesus was coming back, he focused on the immediate, feed the poor, help people with their needs today, grow closer to Jesus. But he doesn't tackle anything too complicated or too time-consuming. He's focused on reaching new people. So this kind of mentality is still prevalent in the church today. This focus on getting people saved, evangelism, and compassion, just feeding the poor, but not justice, dealing with systemic issues in our community, is how most churches default. I'm speaking in broad strokes. I don't think that's true for us. I don't think that's true for every church. But here's the thing I do know. In our faith deconstruction survey that you guys filled out, many of you filled out, we probably got about 30 surveys, you listed many of these things. Things like a hyper-focus on evangelism, the idea that evangelism was the best way to live out your faith and the only thing that God really wanted from you. The idea that you got to focus on getting people saved, the idea that getting people to heaven is the, the number one priority. But, but then also your frustration that churches tend to avoid systemic issues like racism or sexism. And I don't think this is what Paul had in mind, in my opinion. I can't say what Paul had in his mind, I'm not Paul. But I I will say this for certain, with with all of my theological credentials behind it, for whatever that's worth, that is not what God had in mind. And it's not what Jesus wanted for the church. Because it doesn't take long for this toxic theology, this this assumptions to become truly evil. Let me give you one of the worst examples in American history. In American history, slave owners would preach the gospel, in quotations, to their slaves on the hope that they might get saved, while still asking them to be slaves and to obey their masters, just as Paul told them. This focus on getting people saved without doing anything to change their situation, without doing anything to change the world, is is rooted, I think, in part, at least in the trajectory set by Paul in the early church, and their assumption that Jesus was coming back, and that's all that mattered. Get people to heaven. But looking back, friends, we've been at this for a while. Christians have been at for this while. Looking back, we should know better by now, don't you think? 2,000 years later, we should know better. It's possible that maybe Jesus isn't coming back tomorrow. I mean, he could. I'm not Jesus. This is not my call but maybe not, and maybe not in my lifetime. So maybe, just maybe, I should be concerned with this world. I should be concerned with systemic injustice, racism, sexism, I should be concerned with the care of creation and environment. Maybe I should care enough to figure out why people are poor and work to change it. Do you see what I'm saying here? So in this passage, we see this assumption playing out Paul assumes that Jesus is coming back like soon, which means in regards to building our faith and deconstructing our faith, there are some things that we need to prioritize. Let me explain. He says it like this: We're going to build with all kinds of things. So here's what he said in the verse. He says, "Here's the things you're going to build with." The idea is that you're just building with what you can find. Some gonna, you're going to grab stuff. You're building your home. I've never built a home out of gold and silver before. It sounds hard. It does. It is reminiscent of the tabernacle and the temple. You know, that's probably what he's pointing to. But gold, silver, costly stones, wood, hay, and straw. Some of these things are of value and some of them aren't. Some of them will last and some of them won't. Some are easy to build with and some not so much. It's a familiar metaphor because you all grew up with a very similar one. The story of the three pigs. Remember this? One built a house with straw, another with sticks, and another with bricks, and one was easier to build than the other. And then a big bad wolf comes to attack their homes. Now, depending on which version you're reading and how modernized it is, the pigs either escape to the brick house or they get eaten. Just depends on how you wanna raise your kids, which story you tell. (laughs) And lately I'm leaning towards the eaten one. I mean, I'm like, Finn, you are not scared enough about this world. I'm like, I get these fables now, you know, like you gotta strike a little bit of fear. I'm not, don't come to me for parenting advice, by the way, we're talking about theology. I'm much better at it. But the point of the fable is is similar to what Paul is making, with one difference. Paul assumes that Jesus will come back before the wolf shows up. He says it in verse 13. Their work will be shown for what it is because the day will bring it to light. And this day is coming. The day, capitalized, because it's referring to the day, the moment that Jesus returns. Jesus is coming back. And when Jesus comes back, Jesus will decide what is worth keeping and what is worth tossing. He says it in the next verse. The fire will test the quality of each person's work. Fire, like the wolf, will determine whether the house was safe and secure and whether their work was worth keeping. Now, fire... Is used in a couple of different ways in Scripture. Sometimes it's used as a metaphor for judgment and punishment. But other times, it's used as a metaphor for refinement. And here, that's how we see it. It's not being used as judgment or punishment. It's being used as refinement. It's like, it's like putting rough gold into a fire and then burning out the impurities. And uh, um, in this metaphor, Jesus will refine the home's we build instead of the big bad wolf destroying our straw and stick homes to attack us Jesus is more like a contractor who goes through our old house getting the stuff that shouldn't be there not to hurt us but to help us and to make our house better what is going on man all right go back to yeah go back to class oh my gosh did you hear that get back to class So the other day, uh, I was listening to a sermon where I told a story about Finn. And uh, he said, people at church know my name, even though they never met me. And I said, because I talk about you in sermons. And he got real serious, and he was like, yeah. I was like, how do you feel about that? And he said, I don't like that very much. (laughs) So that's the last story I tell about Finn. I think I mentioned him earlier, and very loosely. But I have to ask him permission now. He's five. I don't know how this works. I say that because I was, going to say a couple, I was going to tell a couple more stories about how he sneaks to the bathroom at school just to get out of things. Um, but I'm not going to tell you that story, so it's fine. <laughs> so instead of this big bad wolf destroying our, our stick or straw homes, Jesus is this contractor who goes through the old house and he guts the stuff that shouldn't be there. You know, he refines it. It's a, it's a process of refinement. Not to hurt us, but to help us, to make our house better. We even see this, uh, that it's not about someone being saved. If you read just a few more verses, we don't have time for it, but it's, it, it's not about, it's, we're not talking about the foundation. The foundation is still Jesus. We're not talking about salvation. He says you could, you could build the entire house out of straw and it all gets burned up and you'll still be saved. So don't worry about that. We're, not, we're talking about beliefs and practices that are not foundational beliefs and practices, but we still need them because as we talked about last week, they hold our faith together and they are replaceable. They could be edited, they can be remodeled. And Jesus, like his father, is a master carpenter. So with that in mind, I'm going to make a couple observations. We're still on the rabbit trail. And they might seem a little contradictory, but they're not. Here's the first. Friends, we're never going to build a perfect house. Now remember, we're talking about house in regards to the faith and practices that we build that hold our faith. These things that we do, like showing up to church on Sunday. That's a practice that that you did today. We're not going to build a perfect house. It's just not going to happen. And you know what? This is good news because we can relax a little. Now, we want to do the best we can, but we're not going to get our faith perfect. And by faith, I mean that capital F, the beliefs, practices, and structures that we hold together because ultimately it's God alone who can fix it. That's what Paul's saying here. God is the one who's going to refine it on that day. We're just amateur home builders waiting for the contractor to come and fix our mistakes. And trust me, I know that story. Now, here, this is why this is good news. You can give yourself a break. And you can give your parents a break. And you can give your old pastor a break. You can give your current pastor a break. You can give your old church a break. They aren't perfect. They never could be. Now, the greatest harm that a church or a pastor or a parent can do is try to convince you that they are perfect. You know? They have the most perfect view of God, the most perfect set of doctrines. In fact, they're so perfect that if you don't hold these doctrines and sign the bottom line, you're going to hell. Whether you're particular unique set of doctrines and practices were meant to be the foundations on which you build your house instead of its window dressing. And if you take something that's supposed to be two by fours in the framing and you put it as a foundation, it's not going to last. And that is dangerous because now you've got a bad foundation. But if your foundation is just the person and work of Jesus, it's okay, it's easy. These beliefs and practices aren't foundation. Jesus alone is. So they are humans doing the best that they can, and they would do well just as we would do well to have some humility and admit it. So let me admit it. Central City is not perfect, and neither am I. Whew. Can I get an amen? is not here. I would have got one. Just kidding. She, di- she hasn't told me not to tell stories about her, so. And until we're refined, we won't be. And we're going to do the best that we can. And some of what we've done will pass the test and some of it won't. And we have to live with the brokenness. We have to let it be. There's a, there's a sense that we can look at this and say, you know what? <sighs> That's good enough for now. If you don't know how to do that, I don't know how you make it through life. Sometimes you just got to, like, take a break. That's fine. It's not done, but it's fine. It's good enough for now. I can't figure that out right now. I think that's part of what Paul is saying here. That's the first observation. Here's the second. We believe that Jesus could come back at any time, but we also know that Jesus hasn't. And because of this, logically, we should do a little bit more than what Paul suggests. We can't wait for Jesus to come back to fix everything, not when we know that Jesus is always with us. I don't think Jesus wants us to wait, not with everything, to leave toxic, hurtful, hurtful, dysfunctional parts of our faith as they are simply because heaven's what's most important? No, we don't. We need to deal with what's in front of us. Sure, some things we just have to accept. It's never going to be perfect, but it, but it can certainly be better. Here's the thing. Christians have already realized this, and they've done this for centuries. <laughs> they have rethinking and reimagining your faith. You might be in the midst of deconstruction and absolutely panicking and freaking out, but friends, people have been doing this for a long time. Every new movement, every new denomination, from Luther to Protestantism to every movement that you can attempt to, they, they attempt to rethink, reimagine, and remodel this house of faith that we live in. And every time we think, uh, rethink, and leave behind toxic theology, I think our faith becomes better. Let me give you the most obvious example that I've already mentioned today just to unpack it a little bit. Take slavery. For much of Christianity, slavery was an accepted reality. Not by all Christians, but by too many. But eventually, Christians started to question their reality, especially Christians who were slaves. They began to wonder if maybe this isn't what God wanted for their life, rightly so. We can learn a lot from that theology. But Christians, they understood that if Jesus was our foundation, then there are some parts of the house that we can't allow to to remain standing. We have to knock them down. Now, let me tell you, if you want to examine one of the largest, most violent faith deconstructions we've ever experienced as a nation, it's slavery. We fought a war over it. One of the bloodiest wars in our country. And people will try to tell you, you know, the Civil War was about states' rights, but we know it was about slavery. But do you know that it was also about theology? Biblical teaching. That's what the argument was. Biblical teaching around slavery. Teaching often, not always, but often rooted in Paul's letters. Where it said, slaves, obey your master. The Bible said it, I believe it, that's good enough for me. Slaves, obey your masters. That's what the Bible teaches. So we have to do it, right? And slaves, to be good Christian slaves, you need to obey your masters. That's what they taught. You can Google. Pro-slavery sermons. I did. Well, scary. They're online. They exist. Historical records. I'm not making this up. Now, here's the thing. Sure, for some, slavery was just a way to have power and money, and it probably was for most. But for many preachers and theologians and Christians, it was rooted in their theology. Bad theology, but very biblical theology. You heard that right. Slavery was rooted in biblical theology. They're not even twisting scripture that much to get their theology. Don't get lost here. We're still on this rabbit trail. Stay with me, I am headed somewhere, I promise. Think about it like this. Really sit with this, because if you don't realize this, you're not gonna understand what I'm trying to say here. Today, 80 to 90%, maybe 100% of American Christians would publicly agree that slavery is a sin. Think of the Christians you disagree with. People who are just way on the other side of the political aisle. I'm guessing most of them, even they would, even if they do racist things and say racist things, even they would agree that slavery is a sin and that American slavery was especially heinous. Now, don't get me wrong, some white supremacist so-called Christians might disagree, and there might be some who secretly say to themselves or to each other in dark rooms that they'd love to have slaves again. I'm not saying that's out of the question. I'm just saying every major Christian denomination agrees in America that slavery, especially American slavery, was a terrible sin. No major denomination in America is lobbying to bring slavery back. I'm trying to make this super obvious, okay? So Christians who don't even agree on controversial topics all agree that slavery is bad. It's an accepted normal truth in the modern world. It's a generally accepted truth. Even though accepting slavery as a necessary evil is something the Bible teaches. So every major denomination, including conservative ones, were able to leave behind this so-called biblical teaching for something better. Better. Now, what do you call this other than faith deconstruction? Letting go or jettisoning certain beliefs, even things in Scripture. Faith deconstruction can make us all a little uncomfortable, but I'm here to tell you that it's inevitable and necessary. In fact, I'd argue that faith deconstruction is often necessary if you want to take the work of justice seriously, or more specifically, if you want to take being a follower of Jesus seriously. For me, faith de- deconstruction isn't about becoming less of a faithful follower of Jesus. It's become about becoming more of a faithful follower of Jesus. So in the name of Jesus, we look at our faith, this faith that we have built, and imperfect as it is, we have to decide what to gut and what to keep. We have to deconstruct. So, whew, That's my case for faith deconstruction, everyone. Take a breath, because even though we're running out of time, we are not done yet. Um, We'll have to maybe cut the song a little short today. I'm going to keep going. I just made the executive decision. So that's why we should do it. Here's how I think we should do it. We're going to cover this very briefly. As I mentioned last week, I've spent the last five years remodeling my house. I'm in no way a master craftsman. Um, My work is uh, not perfect, but I've done the best research that I can, and I've learned a lot about how to remodel a house. And I'll be the first to tell you that, like faith, remodeling a house is hard, confusing, and often disorienting, and you feel homeless during the midst of it. Uh, But as I think about a home remodel as a metaphor, uh, your responses, and I kind of ponder the responses from your survey about things that you used to believe but don't or things that you're struggling with, I discovered a simple metric that can help us think about how, on a very practical a way how we remodel our faith. And I'm just going to introduce it to you today. So this is an imperfect metaphor, but I think it's helpful. So here it is. In a home remodel like mine, you can generally put things into uh, four categories. There are things that are not original to the house that were added later in need of being updated. There are things not original to the house that were added later that are worth keeping and make the home a better place. There are things that are original to the house. I live in a very old house, just like our faith is very old, um, that is beautiful and need to be you know reclaimed and highlighted and there are things original to the house that are outdated and quite possibly dangerous so we can put it as a chart anyone here like charts you can put that chart up yeah there you go so you got some things that are not original some things that are original some of those we'll reclaim or keep and some of those we're going to gut so I'll give you a couple of examples. Uh, When I first moved into this house, 1970 edition was added to this 100-year-old house, built in the 70s, it had these beautiful, I say that sarcastically, uh, thin crank windows, all right? So where would you put those? We are not keeping them. So they're not original to the house, and we're gutting them, we got new windows. So put that one up, you see how that works? Crank, uh, clank window, crank, clank, clank, well, you know. Spelling's not really my forte. (laughs) That clanked a little bit, too, when the wind blew. (laughs) All right, another one. Knob and tube. Anyone know what knob and tube is? Original to the house, right? It's original to the house. And when you fix up a house that's old, you should keep everything that's original, correct? You know, just really preserve it and bring it back to its former glory. Not knob and tube. Now, at the time, it was the best that they could do, knob and tube was. But now we know better. So it's original, but we're going to gut it. All right, let's do another one. Hardwood floors. We bought the house for the hardwood floors. Original to the house, 100 years old, beautiful hardwood floors. I get compliments on these floors as if if I was the one that laid them. I love it. Original to the house, are we keeping them? Absolutely, yeah. Hardwood floors, original and we keep. All right, one more. 1970 add-on, shag carpet on top of hardwood floors. Not original to the house, downright evil. Are we keeping that? You know, you're building, you each build your own house, okay? I'm the pastor of this church. We are not keeping shag carpet in the house, all right? So, uh, shag carpet uh, uh, goes there, all right? So, that, that's how it works in a house. Very briefly, let me show you how it works with, with, with our faith. Patriarchy. Don't put these up till I, till I tell you guys. Patriarchy. Here's something about patriarchy. The the idea that women have a certain role in society and in church and in the family, and that men should be leading everything else, okay? This is original to our faith. Not just original to our faith. It's original to a lot of Abrahamic faiths, as well as a lot of other religions. It's just part of the culture. I'm not going to get into the history of patriarchy. There's probably books written about that. What I do know is you go back to Genesis 1 and 2, and it tells a story about men having a certain role in society and women don't. So it goes all the way back to the origins of our faith, the story of creation even. Now, there's lots of ways to interpret that. When I'm talking about interpretation, I'm just talking general. The general scope of scripture is bent towards men in leadership. Now, if you don't know this, we think women should lead here at Central City Church. We think women should preach and serve on the board and serve as leaders in church and society. So it's original to the faith, but are we keeping it? No, Let's put that up. Patriarchy, down with patriarchy. All right? You see how this works? I'll do another one real quick. Also, in the first couple chapters of Genesis, we learn that everyone, male and female, were created in the image of God. Oh, how beautiful is that? The idea that every person that you could ever encounter, including the ones you hate, were created in the image of God. That is some nice hardwood floors, wouldn't you agree? Now, some people might have put some shag carpet over it, but you got to get that up and get back to the original, this idea that every person was created in the image of God. That's beautiful, we, right? So it's original to our faith, and we still like it. No, we reclaim it because we don't— I'm going to get into this, this next week. This isn't about throwing away stuff you don't like because then you would throw away some stuff that like tells us to sell everything we have and give to the poor. So we're going to talk about that. We're not just about throwing away stuff you don't like. But this is one that we do happen to like as well. All right, let's try consider another one. Christian nationalism. This idea that this is the best country in the world and that God has called us to be a leader and a protector and to be an American is to be a Christian. Is that original to our faith? No. We haven't been around that long. Do we want to keep it? No, Christian nationalism is absolutely the shag carpet of of Christianity. It's just like, I and mean, it just, yes, that you can quote me on that. Get that out. We don't, that's not, a, it's not even original. It didn't even, it's not even, like, Paul didn't have any clue. Paul thought Jesus was coming back tomorrow. The idea that he would think of a world day where people would, founding fathers, whatever. That was not on Paul's scope or Jesus. I mean, Jesus knew, obviously. Well, we'll Consider one more. Just to, There are some things that are new to our faith that are fine to keep. Let me give you a couple of examples. Having your own personal Bible. Friends, that's only like what? When was the, the printing press invented? How long ago? 500 years? 1,000 years? 1,500 years? I don't know. I'm not a historian. It wasn't when people, the original, like the original Christians, and certainly the the Hebrew people didn't have their own Bibles. Now, here's the thing. Maybe we shouldn't. Maybe that's part of the problem. I'm I'm just saying it's not original. I think it's fine. I think it's fine if you have your own Bible, but it certainly isn't original to our faith. Same thing with uh, contemporary worship. Let me tell you what we did here today, not original to our faith, not how the early church operated. And you know what? Maybe we should have reevaluated In fact, Robert Caldwell, our consultant, for, continues to proud us to reevaluate. My point is that it's fine. I, I, we're, we are currently doing it, and I don't feel like I need to repent of that at this point. It's fine. It's not original, but we can keep it. You can put it up there, or we can reclaim it. And that's really the point. This is why I separate not original versus original. Not original, here's the thing, friends. If it's not even original, to, it's not even like central to the Hebrew faith or the Christian faith or the teachings of Jesus. Like, I know that you have an, you, if you're going through faith deconstruction, you might have an emotional attachment to it, but I, just want, to, I want you to know that you can be liberated from that. It doesn't matter. It's not, even, it's not even original. The hard stuff, which does take a little bit more work and wrestling, is when you go back like, oh, Christianity has always been this way. The Bible even seems to teach this over and over again in multiple places, Old and New Testament. What do we do with that? Like slavery, like patriarchy. Well, that stuff is really hard and still necessary for us to unlearn and still necessary for us to jettison, but is important. So this raises two questions, and this is where I'm going to end. Two very important questions. Um, Where do we put these things in our life? All these things you listed in your survey, where do we put them in this category? Where do we put them? And who gets to decide? Who gets to decide where they go? So what do we keep? What do we toss? And who gets to decide? That is a very good question. Or do we just get to throw out the stuff we don't like? Well, obviously, we're not going to cover that today. Um, next week, we have, uh, we're going to talk a little bit about the trauma associated to faith deconstruction and ways to help with that. And then in two weeks, we're going to answer these questions. Who gets to decide what we throw out and what we keep and what is a good and healthy and historically Christian way to do that. So I hope that you will join us. And um, yeah, we have run out of time. So Maria, we, are, we don't get to do your last song. And I heard you guys practice it. If you wanted, you should have come early, friends, and you could have heard it. Because I know some of you came in after the bell. I'm just playing. Um, I'm going to leave you. Uh, uh, I'm going to take a second and we're going to pray. And uh, I encourage you to wrestle, think about this. It's really important when you hear something like this to have some time. That's one of the reasons why we do a closing song, is to reflect. So we'll just take a few moments to let this settle, and then I'm going to leave you with a blessing. So let's do that now. Let's pray. God, help us to take what was said today and use what is useful and throw away what wasn't. I I trust that your spirit's able to work regardless of the feeble attempt that I make at stringing sentences together. Be with each one of us, Holy Spirit, and help us understand. that We might love one another and love you better. your name, amen. Friends, I leave you with this blessing. May the peace of the Lord Christ go with you wherever he may send you. May he guide you through the wilderness and protect you through the storm. May he bring you home rejoicing at the wonders he has shown you. May he bring you home rejoicing once again into our doors. We'll see you all next week.